So one of the things I was supposed to do in 2020 was come here for um, a church weekend. And at the time, um, I was doing some work on, on Peter, uh, and that was what I was thinking I would do. And, and I kind of thought that if I turned up last year, I would have probably done one Peter. Um, but, but as another year goes by, and, and, and Acts is the, is the kind of book that I've been um, doing things on um, over the past, past year. So, so we're going to be looking at that, um, and particularly the, the last bit of, um, of Acts, um, chapter 1, and, and that bit in, in chapter 2. Now I think it's probably true to say that, that Acts begins with a, with a big bang. Um, it, it begins uh, being reminded that Luke is writing a, a second part of his, of his great gospel story, and he speaks about um, the, the, the way that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that began in his coming continues through to um, the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and ends up in Rome. That's, that's the, the nature of the, the book of Acts. Luke was a journey from Jerusalem um, to Jerusalem um, and Acts is a journey from Jerusalem to Rome, uh, the gospel spread. And it is a, a continuation it is um, something that we're, we're told there at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, um, that I am writing to you about what Jesus continued to do and teach. And it's a helpful thing to remember, that we are not building the church. We are not uh, activating the mission of God. Jesus is the active agent. And we are continuing um, as his servants, as his body. Um, he is the one who is at work, and he is the one upon whom we are dependent. And it's very important to, to recognise that. Now, in this story, um, Jesus gives a very clear indication of his agenda. And in verse 8, uh, we see something of the theme of the book, that the disciples are to, um, to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is given to them, and then... They're, they're to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, um, Samaria, and, and to the ends of the earth. And it's a reminder that this, this story is about the mission of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. The Holy Spirit is often spoken about, um, and there's been a lot of focus upon him in the last few decades. The interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is that he is... Um, a person who is outward-looking. Um, the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit does not make us inward-looking, navel-gazing. The Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit that uh, makes our eyes look out to a lost and needy world. Now, for all of us, distractions are a, a real factor in life. And, and here in this chapter, um, the disciples ask a question, verse 6, is this now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus is going to tell them that, in fact, that there's a much bigger agenda. That the, the agenda uh, that he has is for every nation, for every part of the world. That his agenda is not to be that narrow. They're distracted by a question. They're distracted by um, wondering whether... Jesus will uh, now play ball and and be the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. Um, 
doing something to gather the people of Israel and to restore it to the place that it once had. So there's a distraction of a question. And, and the Christian church is often distracted by questions. You know, sometimes the questions are helpful. Sometimes the, the, the questions are simply a distraction. They move us off message. They move us off the central agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be guided back. In fact, um, it seems as though Christian history is a history of like a, a car that kind of veers to the left. And you need to kind of just uh, reset the, the steering wheel in order that you might be driving in the right direction. <coughs> Distraction and then refocus. And then, um, after Jesus has said, you know, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to um, take the gospel to all nations, then Luke tells the story of Jesus ascending into heaven um, for the second time. He tells it at the end of Luke's gospel. And now he tells it at the beginning of Acts as well. We, we read them in verse 9 uh, to 11 that they are looking up into the sky. Now, um, Christians throughout history have spent a lot of time doing this. Gazing, hopefully, um, at the ceiling, at the sky, at the future, reflecting on what might be, what the order of events might be. And angels come and say, he's going to come back. He's going to come back. Um, and it's a reminder, and an important reminder for the church, that the Holy Spirit and the Gospel is not some secret insight into an exotic future. It is a preparation for a vital present. The Gospel is about being present in our time. The Holy Spirit has come that we might be active in our present situation, faithfully seeking to bring the good news to our particular community. So that's very important. So the Acts begins with a bang. And then in the middle of this story, chapter 1, from verse 12, we, we have what seems to be um, a relatively low-key and slow story. Uh, people who have had any contact with the, with the Anglican Church will know that there are two seasons in the church year called ordinary time. The time between uh, Christmas and Lent and the time between Pentecost and Advent is described as ordinary time. There are no major festivals in that time. You get up in the morning, not because someone's telling you about the, the wonderful gift or the, the amazing sacrifice of Christ or the coming of the Holy Spirit. You get up on a Sunday morning to worship because you know that Jesus is alive every day and the Spirit is active in our world every day. That's the point, isn't it? There was a, a preacher um, from Birmingham called R.W. Dale, and he, he won Easter, had a, a very dramatic experience of the power of Easter. And he decided that every Sunday morning, from there on in, he would start the service with a resurrection hymn. To remind him, and to remind his congregation, Jesus is alive. In fact, in our reading, we read, didn't we, in those first three verses, that Jesus gave many compelling proofs that he was alive. You know, he, he made it very plain that this had not been made up. This is not some kind of construct. This is real. Jesus is 
really alive. The gospel is at work in the world. Ordinary time. And what happens in ordinary time? I'm struggling kind of reading my Bible at this point. So, but, but, I know that we kind of have a, a little bit of a um, degrading of the screen. Is that too much of a degrading of the screen? We can cope. That's all right, you can cope. Um, but but I'll, I'll kind of be able to read my Bible. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> it's very important. You kind of feel it's kind of good really. It's kind of a bit of a trade-off, isn't it? <laughs> they begin to learn how to pray. Um, and that, that's a very important thing, as we'll see as we read through the Acts of the Apostles. So there in verse 12, when the Apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mountain of, Mount of Olives, Sabbath days walked from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were the eleven. They all joined together, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They learn to pray. And of course, no church really makes progress until it has learned to pray. We used to have a joke in Lancet. It's amazing how many blessings God has given us in return for such little prayer. It was kind of a joke, but it was kind of a, a dark joke in a sense. And I think you, you understand what I'm saying, don't you? Um, that God is very gracious. He does do many good things amongst us, and often things that we haven't asked for. In fact, we'll see, as we look in later chapters in Acts, that sometimes God does things that have nothing to do with us. Blessings arise, um, and there's no visible cause in what we've done, or what we've prayed. Um, it's part of the nature of God. He is a God of, of abundance. He is God who is better than us. He is a God who is, who is more generous than we are prayerful. But they did learn to pray, and I think um, praying is, is one of those features that we'll see in, in each of the readings that we'll have this weekend. And, and prayer is is not uh, an add-on to the church. It's not some kind of luxury extra that you have for particularly keen people. Um, someone described it, didn't they, in the hymn as uh, as a Christian's vital air. That prayer is the is the oxygen of the Christian church. And of course, after that magnificent plum pudding, I guess we we all need a little bit of oxygen um, and and movement to kind of keep ourselves um, awake. Oxygen is important for us to be alive, and the oxygen of prayer is really important. Prayer says to us, I don't make everything happen. Prayer says to us, I am dependent upon someone else. Prayer says, I can't fix everything. Prayer says, I know a man who can. The church learned to pray. And, and it is a um, a thing that we learn, isn't it? Jesus um, had his disciples approach them, uh, him and say, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. We do need to learn to pray. And churches need to learn to pray. We need to learn how it is to pray together as the people of God. What to pray. To pray for the things which are important. Important to God. Important to our world. And that's the striking thing, isn't it? They all join together constantly in prayer. That's what we read in verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer. Now, you can have a kind of superficial view of this, 
that somehow, you know, one person praying is kind of um, is effective and two people praying is more effective, three people praying is more effective still. I don't think it's quite like that. But there is a sense in which there is a mutual encouragement and there does seem to be a kind of certain strength. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst, um, kind of indicating that maybe maybe he was, he was delighted to see people in concert in prayer. And they were joined together in prayer. And there's something about that. There's something about, you know, you, you brought a request to the prayer meeting. And someone takes it up in prayer. Then someone else takes it up in prayer. And everybody says amen. And you kind of feel, I'm not alone. This is not something I'm struggling with on my own. This is something that other people are holding the weight for me together. They were all joined together in prayer. They learned how to pray. They learned the effectiveness of praying together. And I think one of the things that's really good, I think, for a church is to is to perhaps from time to time establish the things that we as a church are praying for. This is what we are looking for God to do amongst us. And this is what we're going to be praying for when we meet together regularly. And this is what we're going to be praying for individually as well. To have a sense of this is what we're calling upon God to do amongst us. And of course, on this particular occasion, they were responding to what Jesus had said. Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that Christians historically have spoken about prayer is waiting upon God. If we don't make everything happen, we need to wait upon God to make things happen. You know, sometimes uh, prayer can be a bit like, you know, pulling an apple from a tree. You know, if you pull an apple from a tree and it's not quite ripe, you have to tug it. It's really hard work. If an apple is ripe and ready to be picked, it will yield in the hand um, very easily. Waiting upon God, waiting for the moment, waiting for the breakthrough, waiting for God to, to work in a particular instance. And that's what they were doing. They were waiting. They were longing for God to be at work amongst them. And again, our waiting is a reminder that it's God's time. It's God's work. It's God's agenda. You know, sometimes we, we want it. We want it now. We want instant things. Chatting to someone this week and reminded of that statement about prayers that some answers to prayer are like hairs that run fast. And sometimes answers to prayer like tortoises that move slowly. I was interested by the story of George Muller, the, uh, the great um, Christian brethren man from, from uh, Bristol, kind of sort of orphanages, who remarkable prayers. So he, he sit down at a table, one, one particular instance, sat at the table. Um, the, the children had their bowls in front of them with some spoon in the bowls, had their milk. He prayed at the table that God would provide milk. And there was a knock on the door. A milkman, not with an electronic milk cart, but a horse and cart, had broken down outside of the orphanage and said, can you use the milk? I can't get it to where it needs to be because we've broken down. He prayed for two friends, or prayed for three friends, rather, to be converted. Two of the friends were converted very soon. 
One of the friends was converted after 60 years of praying for that man, waiting upon God, waiting upon his time, waiting upon him to work um, amongst us. Very important thing to do. The second thing they learned to do was to wrestle with tough questions with their Bible in hand. And churches need to do this. We, we live in complex times. We live in times where we can be puzzled about what happens in the world, what happens in the Bible, what happens in our church. Things don't always go according to plan. Um, things are not always ideal. Now, we remember, don't we, there were 12 disciples of Jesus. The list we have is of 11. So, here are these 11 men. They spent three years as a team of 12 with Jesus, and one of their fellow leaders has denied their saviour and wrecked his own life and lost his own life. What do you do with that? You're a church, and you have some leaders. And one of your leaders, one of your fellow leaders, messes up big time. What do you do? How do you deal with that? So here, the church, are facing a big question with Bible in hand. So in those days, verse 15, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then the description of the tragedy. For, we read in verse um, 20, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Now, Peter does this again on the day of Pentecost. There is a sense in which um, we see God's outworking of his plan, even in the tragedy of the denial and the betrayal of, of Judas, and even in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That these things are, are not unanticipated events. God has told us that they will happen, and they have happened. It doesn't make it easier for us. It's still painful to, to lose someone who is a fellow worker. But we understand that this is not completely wrecking God's plan. That the, the mission of God in the world is going to continue, and we're going to replace Judas. We're going to have a twelfth man after all. Now there's something symbolic about 12. I mean, if you kind of read the Bible, um, you know that number 12 is something that kind of features more than once. There are 12 tribes of Israel, there are 12 disciples. You kind of see that modelling in the book of Revelation. The, uh, the tribes and the, and the disciples in, in the architecture of um, the, the new city at the end of the book of Revelation. 12 is a symbolic figure. And there is something about Jesus calling 12, kind of representing his people, and the, the desire on the day of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to fill the church in that symbolic 12 
Interestingly, there are 120 gathered here, a kind of multiple of 12. The symbolism that God was coming by the Holy Spirit to fill and equip his people, and that God would provide a replacement for Judas. And the last thing we see them learning is, is, is learning how to discern the mind of God. And I think this is a really challenging thing for the church. It's not always exactly the same as explaining a statement of scripture. Peter's done that. He's explained a statement of scripture. He's explained that God has said that there is a certain necessity in uh, the action of Judas. And he said that he designs for a replacement for Judas. But the discernment is, who will it be? You know, you might have in a church four or five people who are qualified to do a particular task and you need one person to do that task. How do you choose that person? Well, you need to learn to use discernment. Sometimes in the church, it's not a matter of right or wrong, it's a matter of wise or unwise. It's a a matter of just understanding the mind of God in the circumstance. And that's what we see here. So, and we read in verse 21, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. From one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominate two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, um, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry. They they seek God's mind. And, and the way they do it is uh, it's kind of almost the equivalent of flipping a coin. Um, we're told there they, they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. Now it's a, an ancient, biblical method for making decisions. The, the priests made decisions in this way in the Old Testament. It's the last time this particular trick is used, um, pre-Pentecost. The way people make decisions after this is going to be very different. We're going to talk a little bit about the difference of things being described in the book of Acts and things being prescribed in the book of Acts. Sometimes the book of Acts describes describes things that are not necessarily things which are a description for every time, every day and every place in the life of the church. Here we see a description of what they did as a pre-Pentecost group of Jesus followers before the Holy Spirit had come amongst them and they choose one to complete their number. They learn how to discern God's mind. It's really important. I think it's one of the things that you just see generally in Scripture, that Scripture recommends a sensitivity to God's direction. I remember doing um, a Bible, or a series of sermons rather, in the book of Numbers. And what struck me in the book of Numbers, I don't know if you've kind of read the book of Numbers very often, is that the, the, the people of Israel are told that they need to move when God moves. So when the when the pillar of fire, when the cloud moves, they need to move. If the cloud stays for a day, they stay for a day. If it, if it stays for a month, they stay for a month. And it, and it develops a, a real sensitivity to 
What's going on? What God's saying? How God is directing? And I think churches need that sensitivity. What's God doing? What's God saying? What's God's mind in this particular situation? As we make choices and move forward, we need to learn to listen. Of course, in the in the reading, the third reading that we'll have, we, we're told that the apostles say, um, our ministry is to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And the way that people um, discern God's mind um, throughout the rest of the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament is primarily reading scripture, allowing God to speak to us through scripture, and speaking to God in prayer. That's the way that we, we learn what God wants us to do. And then in that reading in chapter 2, after Pentecost, we have this statement about the church. Now, a friend of mine, Tom Long, um, he talks about conducting a confirmation class for um, some, some girls um, in the Presbyterian Church in Castor in America. And he was talking to them about the festivals of the church, and he explained to them the, the day of Pentecost, and explained... Um, how the, the, the rushing wind um, blew around the disciples and the, um, the tongues of fire um, rested upon them. And three of the girls were kind of, you know, like many children are, kind of you know, pretty matter-of-fact about it. They kind of, you know, took it on board. One of the girls, though, kind of, her, um, her mouth kind of gaped open, so sometimes it happens, you know, with a, with a child who gog at the story, and she said, um, gosh, Dr. Long, we must have been absent that Sunday. So in between our two readings, there is this astonishing event at Pentecost, where the Spirit comes upon the church and empowers Peter in his preaching. And the end result of this is the church is is added to, 3,000 people are added um, in one day. Now it's been lovely to see additional members at um, at Beach Hill, it's great to come uh, in November and, uh, and see new faces at the church. Lovely to see that kind of beginning. And new beginnings do kind of generate interest. Um, but but this, is, this is astonishing, isn't it? 3,000 people added to the church in one day. And we're told they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And, and again, it seems to be a, a, a restatement of those kind of priorities that we've kind of thought about already. They learned to pray. They learned to deal with questions with Bible in hand. Um, they learned to discern God's will. They were together and they were praying. Those kind of things um, come out again. And I think it's a reminder, a second reminder in our reading now, that being together is a really important thing in the Church of Jesus Christ. Being together is a, a vital ingredient of being church. I really enjoyed coming to that Sunday evening service when you had a meal and you sat around tables and you spent time together. I really think that that will be an important ingredient in your life together as a church because those kind of things do promote togetherness. Things that promote that are so good. The, the church that we were at in Lowestoft, um, I, I actually was converted there before I became a pastor there. And I remember the, the leader of the church when I was growing up um, used to talk about the importance of fun, food and fellowship. Um, and 
he, he, he would seek to find opportunities to bring people together and bring people together purposefully so that they could get to know each other like at events like this um, and that they could grow in their faith together. Togetherness. That fellowship, that partnership, that drawing together, that knitting together of God's people. That, that sense that we are in it together, sorry to borrow that political term, but we are truly in it together. And we're, we're willing to share our time and share our lives and even share our assets. It's kind of interesting that, isn't it? We'll come to it a bit more tomorrow. But um, there in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who, who we had need. Now, we kind of live, don't we, in a time of the squeeze of the middle, the, the middle class. We, we live in a time when, when people who thought they were doing okay um, suddenly open, open their electricity and gas bills and find that their disposable income has shrunk. It may well be that the churches um, in the UK, the church in Otley, needs to kind of think about whether um, there needs to be some of this kind of sharing um, amongst one another, a togetherness. And it's interesting, again, that idea that they, they shared their table, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, verse 46. Remember, um, sitting across a table um, in Burundi, talking to a pastor and saying to him, will you tell me one of your proverbs? And he leaned over the table and he said to me, if you want to see into a man's heart, invite him to your table. If you want to see into a man's heart, invite him to your table. There's something, isn't there, about being around a table with people, um, breaking bread with people. And I take it that that's not just talking about the communion service, but just talking about, you know, having a few sandwiches together, um, enjoying time together. There's something. It slows you down. I know in Britain it's not quite always the case. It's true in the Middle East. When people had meals, they, they took time over that. And it, it developed relationships and strengthened relationships. I read this this week. It's kind of interesting. Not going to church should feel abnormal for Christians. It's kind of a bit of a controversial statement in some ways, isn't it? I mean, post, post-Covid, where um, the idea of um, pyjama and onesie church, <laughs> sofa church, became quite popular... Which was which was a lifesaver, quite frankly. We mustn't kind of, um, you know, un- underestimate the value of that kind of time. But the great tragedy of that time is that spending time with people, you know, being with people, shaking people's hands, hugging people, handing people a cup of coffee, sitting next to them, feeling their breath, hearing them sing, hearing the vibration of people's bodies moving and singing. Just miss that. There's something about being together that is so very important. Hey, it's kind of interesting. I remember an evangelist um, once saying, um, it was a controversial evangelist, he used to go around carrying a cross. Um, he said it when he, when he evangelised a certain area where the gospel had not come, he didn't tell them about Sundays. He, he just made, made them assume that Christians would hang out with each other as often as they could. 
And it's kind of interesting here, isn't it, that that's what happened here. That they um, met together, kind of like on a daily basis with each other. They couldn't get enough (coughs) of being together. It's kind of a strange culture, isn't it, in some ways, that we've kind of developed in the Western world, where it seems to be hard work to get people to want to be together. God's people are really attractive, aren't they? God's people are a delightful people. Psalm 16 speaks about the, the godly in the land that are my delight. That was a phrase that that leader Stanley used to use so often. Um, do you love Jesus and do you love his people? That's, that's what being part of the church is, isn't it? You know, we, we don't attend simply because it's our duty, but because it is ultimately our delight. What does it mean to belong to the church? We used to reckon at Lansing Town, you kind of belong to the church if you turned up. I think Woody Allen is, is right, you know, that 99% of success is turning up. You know, that you turned up on a relatively regular basis at church. You, you belong to some kind of small group, whether it be a Bible study group or the music group or, or some small group where you were having meaningful interaction with other people in the congregation. And thirdly, you had some kind of job in the life of the church. There's something that you did, um, however small that might be, to contribute to the church. And I think probably they are, you know, kind of three of those you know, basic things that help the church um, come together. But we need to recognise um, that, that belonging is important. Um, so so um, uh, when uh, the England team um, went to Euro 2020 and 2021, so you know, changing the, the date of a, an event is not unusual, um, there was a book which um, they used to, to encourage a sense of belonging. Different people, different backgrounds, different races, all in one team, all with one particular purpose, one goal, to bring football home. We know that you don't always fulfil that goal. I thought, as a ten-year-old boy in 1996, it was always going to be like this. 1966. Sorry. 1996 was good. Not good enough. 1960s, I thought it was always going to be like this. But of course, unfortunately, not. Invisible Divides. Natalie Williams. It is common to see people from poorer backgrounds, people like me, saved and baptised, but not added. I was intrigued by that comment as we kind of read here about the Lord adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And I kind of wonder, who are the invisible people in Ockley? Where are the invisible divides in Ockley? Who are the people that would feel it hard to be added, incorporated into the life of the church in Otley? Who are the invisible people? There are some people, um, you know, Anne and I, when we saw new people coming to our church in, in Lansing, we thought, you know, yeah, they'll fit in. They'll fit in fairly easily, you know. Um, people are all over them, like a rash. There are some people, though, that just get left in the corner. Really important, isn't it, for, for, for intentional adding, friendliness 
openness, flexibility, going the extra mile. And of course, you know, if we are to belong, if we are to be the Church of Jesus Christ, if we are to be Christians, let us be Christian. Let us be the Church. And the lovely thing about this, this little scene from the Acts is that they are people who are glad. They are together. They are in awe of God. And they are real. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the message of the weekend. Don't come to church. Be the church. Don't come to church. Be the church. By the... They're big mice, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs>